James 1, we're going to cover some major ground here, six whole verses. And, uh, but it's good. There's, this is tied in with what we've seen already. And, and what we see today, what we're going to deal with today, is a very real issue. Um, I don't know, for some reason I'm emotional today, but I was thinking about it this, as I was preparing this. I can remember vividly, and I'll probably always remember this, and it's probably a question that all of us have dealt with or, or will deal with. I remember uh, right after Karen's father had died, Bradley was about three and a half. And we were driving, we were driving on 56, about to go over the interstate. I think we were actually about to get on the interstate. And uh, I had been, just as it would have it, have it, I had been talking with Bradley leading up to that. And we were talking about, he was learning what omniscience means, that God knows all. And omnipotence and God, that means God is all powerful. Immutability, that God is unchanging as we'll see today omnipresence that, that God is everywhere and we had just we had been talking about those and um, I remember him asking right after he said dad God's omniscient said, yeah he's omnipotent, and he's saying this as best as he can and he said and, and God is omnipotent I said yeah he's all-powerful son yes and I remember him asking then why did poppy die why, why didn't he stop Poppy from dying? See, if we're, if we're honest, that's probably questions, those are probably questions that we've all dealt with. Why? What, why this? Why that? And if we don't deal with those properly, if we don't deal with those in a right way, if we don't have a sound theological framework a biblical viewpoint to look at all of life, not just death, but relationships, life, school, work. If we don't have a biblical framework to look at all these things, we will have a tendency to go down that road and we will end up questioning God's goodness and we'll end up questioning His character. And we'll end up accusing God, whether directly or indirectly, we'll accuse Him of wrongdoing. We'll accuse Him of even our own sin rather than taking responsibility and dealing with it ourselves. Where that road leads is we will begin to accuse God and blaming Him for our sin. And that's what James is dealing with here. In verses 2 through 12, we've taken weeks to make sure we understand that, that God is faithful and that He is sovereign over trials, that He is he is maturing our faith, that He's purifying our faith, that He's doing all these things in our trials, that He's at work, that though He doesn't always bring the trial to us, He is sovereign over the trial and He matures our faith and He perfects our faith and He purifies our faith and He matures our faith. God is sovereign over our trials. And what James says here in verses 13, really 13 and following as I've said, is a sometimes natural overflow of that truth that God is sovereign over all. He's sovereign. That, that He is sovereign over every area of our lives. And, and if we're not careful, the natural conclusion of that, where we will go with that when we face troubles, when we face trials, when we sin, 
we will accuse God of evil. We'll accuse God of wrongdoing. The challenge is, is that all of us in here are prone to being deceived not only about our own character, but about God's character. We're, we're prone to thinking unfair, untrue, um, unbiblical things about God. And ultimately, in our sinfulness, where it leads is we will pass the buck and we will pass responsibility. And ultimately, in order to preserve self, we will blame God for our sin. We will blame Him. And that's what James is dealing with here in verses 13 through 18. And James is going to categorically deny the claim or the idea that God tempts anyone to sin or that He is the author of temptation. God is not the source of temptation. He's not the author of sin. What, what James is going to make very clear here, and I want us to see today, and, and, and it will not be the most encouraging. You're not going to walk out of here just, man, I'm really charged up. I'm really glad I got up this morning to hear that. We're going to find out today where to place the blame. And what James is going to tell us today is God is not the problem. You and I are the problem. You and I are the source of all of our temptations. And James is going to make this perfectly clear. James is going to vindicate. He's going to clear God of any accusation of wrongdoing with regards to our sin and our temptation. He's going to vindicate Him. He's clean. James is going to make it clear to us that you and I are responsible for our reactions and temptations in the midst of trials. Because with every trial, with every trial, there will be a temptation to sin. Within that trial, you will be tempted to respond incorrectly. That temptation comes within you and I, not God. James is going to close this section by reiterating some very sound true theological things about God, that He is the giver of every good gift. Anything good in your life, He's the author. He's going to tell us that He's unchanging, that He's immutable, that He doesn't change. There's no shifting or variation of shadows. And ultimately, He's going to make it clear that even the salvation, even the regeneration that we have is from God. But He is, he is not the author of evil. There will be a tendency in our sinfulness to go there. And it's, I don't, this clock is not working. So for all of our sakes, somebody needs to tell me when it's about 9.40. I think, I mean 10.40. It's way past 9.40. About 10.40, 10.45. Chad, you got a watch or anything on you? Just like set alarm. Give me till like 10.58. No, I'm just kidding. 10.40, 10.40, 10.45. And, and again, within that one point today you see on your handout, I, I want to try to make this very clear because this is huge. This is huge. This is something we're all going to battle with. God is sovereign over all of our trials, but we are responsible for our response in the trials. God is sovereign over all of our trials, but you and I are responsible to how we respond in those trials. I hope, I hope that is clear. Look, look at me at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting of shadow. 
In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits, first fruits among His creatures. What I want us to see this morning as we build a case to show the, the truth of the point that I want to make today, that God is sovereign and we are responsible. James makes in verses 13 and 14, and he deals with the source of our temptations. James gets right to the point and is dealing with the source of our temptation. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Every single trial, listen to me, when, you go, when, when every single trial brings with it the possibility of temptation because we're sinners. And let me illustrate what I mean by that. When we face financial struggles, what are we tempted to do? We're tempted to accuse God of not being a good provider. We're tempted to accuse Him of wrongdoing in His provision. We're tempted to go to Him and accuse Him that He's not done what we think He's promised in the Word. When we face the loss of a loved one, we're tempted to question whether God loves us. We're tempted to question whether He's good. We're tempted to question all these things that the Word of God makes very clear. We're tempted to question those. I mean, with every t- I mean, and you see this in your kids. If you have kids, you see this truth. You can go get your kid a great gift. You go get them a great gift. They've got a great thing. If there's more than one kid, even if there's one kid, but if there's more than one kid, it's going to turn into World War III. You didn't do this to me, or why didn't you do this? Or when? They're going to fight. They're going to accuse. Verse 13 is, is speaking to the response and the attitude that, that comes into sinful man, that God is behind our sin in some way, form, or fashion. That's, that's where they, they were like, okay, if God is sovereign, and, I'm, and, I, and within that trial I'm sinning, God must be the author of sin. And James is saying, absolutely not. Absolutely not. No person, no matter the trial, no matter how severe, no matter how tragic, can claim that God is tempting them to sin. In the Greek, James rebukes that idea in the strongest way. You see the same idea in Romans 6.1 when people said, Hey, if, if, grace, if God's grace is shown when I sin, then I can just sin all the more. They said the same thing in Romans 6.15. Their, their argument there showed that they understood how radical grace was. If Paul had come to them and said, Hey, you're saved by doing this, 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 and this, you would never respond, well, then I'll just sin all the more if that shows off God's grace. They understood how radical God's grace was. And their response was, well, if God's grace is that awesome, I can just do whatever I want to do. And, James, and Paul says, by no means. Let it never be, is what he says. And, and even here, they're tracking. God is sovereign. He's totally sovereign. But they came to a wrong conclusion. They understood the radical nature, but they came to the wrong conclusion. The Old Testament makes it very clear in passages such as Genesis 22 with Abraham, Deuteronomy 8 we saw in our study uh, with regard to the Israelites and them entering the land and, and wandering in the wilderness, in Judges 2 with regards to Israel and the pagan nations. God will test His people to expose their heart. We saw that in Deuteronomy 8.2. He says, I did this to show what was in your heart. God knows what's in our heart. The problem is, as we've said, you and I don't know what's in our heart. 
And we think we're something that we're not. And sometimes, God, that's not behind all trials, that's sometimes. God tests His people to expose what's in their heart. But while God may be doing that, His heart, his heart is, to, is to strengthen and purify, not to lead into sin. And again, the challenge here, what James is getting at, is the content of our faith. We need a pure faith. We need an unadulterated faith. We need a faith that sees God clearly and sees the Word clearly, not mixed with world and, and all these worldly philosophies and all these false theologies. Every single one of us in here have bad theology. It, it, the world infiltrates our theology. And the problem is, some, and even, even in my... Even my as I'm trying to have right theology, sometimes I have wrong theology. I just don't know where it is. And that's why I, I humbly come to these things when people ask me questions. Hey, what does the Bible say here? That is, you got to understand, that is a, a very, very big question to ask me. What does this, I, to what does the Bible say? That's a big question. That question comes with a lot of responsibility. I, I want to tell you rightly. And the, the issue is the content of our faith, what we know God to be, who we know God to be. That's what's at stake here. The content of our faith, it's our biblical worldview. How we view the character of God is at stake here. Again, understanding the character of God, having a biblical worldview, that's what we need to address all the issues in life. It's not these little, t it's I need a big view of God. I need an accurate view of God. And then I need to filter all of my circumstances, all the things I face, I need to filter that through the character of God. But what happens is, in our sinfulness, we begin to filter the character of God through our circumstances. And we try to come up with a theology of God based on what our circumstances are, instead of saying, you know what, God, I'm going to filter my circumstances through I know who I know you to be. And those are very different. And our flesh... Hear me, our flesh, in our sinfulness, we want to blame somebody. It can't be our fault. It can't be my fault. And so, ultimately, we end up blaming God. And that's what James is dealing with. In our sinfulness, we want to blame anyone but ourselves. And if you don't think that's true, turn back to Genesis 3. There were but two people on the earth. Two. Hey, you got one rule. Eat anything, do anything you want, don't eat of this tree. Guess what happens? They get deceived. They eat of the tree. You know the story. God comes in the garden. They're hiding. He says, hey, where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? And he says, we were hiding. He says, why are you hiding? Well, because we were naked. Well, who told you you were naked? Well, well, well and God knows, but guess what happens? Guess what? He talks to Adam. He says, what happened? He says, well, we, we ate the, the fruit that you told us not to eat, but the, the woman you gave me made me do it. The woman you gave me. Husbands, I'm just going to tell you, there's never a circumstance where a good answer is, the woman you gave me made me do it. Just, just write it down. I don't even care if you're right. Just don't say it. The woman made me do it. The woman made me do it. He looks to Eve. Guess what Eve says? The serpent. The serpent deceived me. Blame. It couldn't be, hey, God, I repent, I sinned, I fell short, I did it. You know what they do? It's blame. Blame. And, and that game, that blame game has been going on forever. Blame, Eve, Adam blames the woman, Eve blames the serpent. 
ultimately, ultimately, here's what we got to understand. Ultimately, who are they blaming? They're blaming God. Do you see, do you see how, do you see how wretched we are? Do you see how utterly sinful we are? In a sin, in, in order to preserve self, we will attack the character of God. And, and that's really the boldest move of all, and that's what James says here. But see, we, we may be a little more, we may be just a little bit more disguised in our attempts to blame God. We, we might not just say, God, the woman you gave me, we just, we just, we'll just blame our spouse in general. Or we'll blame coworkers, Or we'll blame our kids. Or we'll blame Satan. Nowadays, it's cool to blame your environment. The environment. Genetics. I, I'm wired that way. I, I can't do nothing about it. That's ridiculous. You wouldn't say to somebody who is mad, I'm just wired that way. You'd say, well, stop doing that. Oh, I'm just wired to be a murderer. I don't know what to tell you. Can't stop it. That's crazy. But see, you see what the attempt is? The attempt is to pass the buck. The attempt is to, I don't want to admit that I'm a sinner. I don't want to admit that I'm responsible. So I will pass the buck. I will pass the blame. And all of these are attempts to preserve self even to the point that we would blame God. Even to the point that we would blame God. Listen to what Proverbs 19.3 says. Listen to this. A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. Is that not indicative of humankind? A man's own folly ruins his life, and yet who does he rage against? The Lord. At, at the core of this attitude, it's an attitude that blames God. Ultimately, we're saying, God, you're sovereign. It's your fault. And, and it's an attempt to escape personal responsibility. And notice the basis that James rejects this claim. He, he, he rejects it and says that is absolutely foolish to blame, to blame God. And in verse 13... He, he points to God's character. He says, God cannot, he is, God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. He, he, attribute, he goes to the character of God. He says, you look at the character of God. And interesting, look at verse 14. He compares it to the character of man. But each one is tempted when he is carried away by his own lust. It's about character. And we learn a few things about not only humanity, about the, but about the character of God here that are very, very key. And you see them there on your handout on, on letter A. God is perfectly sinless. You need to understand that. James make it very clear. The beginning of his argument is this. God is sinless. Perfectly sinless. And two reasons James says why it's wrong to blame God for our sin. Number one, it's wrong because it's inconsistent with his character. And that's what James says here. The, literally, the word he says, for God cannot be tempted by evil. The word there is, is, is literally inexperienced. His character knows nothing of evil. He had no, no inkling of relationship to evil. God is void of all evil. Habakkuk 1.13, listen, listen to what he says. Your eyes are too pure. Talking about God. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. He's too pure to behold, even to look upon it. He, he, his character won't allow it. 
And, and this is huge for us to grasp. God is good, He is perfect, and He is unchangeably holy. Period. End of discussion. He is unsusceptible to evil. There's nothing in Him that would respond to evil. There's nothing in Him that would cause Him to, that would incite Him to do evil, that would cause Him to do it, even to dream it up. It has no appeal to Him. Nothing. That was the whole point of Matthew 4 was God was showing that Jesus, there's nothing in him to respond. This is God. This is his son. Satan, you can throw whatever you want at him. There's nothing in Jesus to respond to the temptation. There's no evil in him. Evil, he abhors evil. Not only his character, though, would cause it blaming him to be wrong, but God's actions make blaming him wrong. James makes it very clear. Not only can he not be tempted by evil, but he himself does not tempt anyone. His actions. That this ought to give us tremendous security as a believer. God's stainless purity ought to give us peace in trials. It ought to give us strength knowing this. God's purity is for us, not against us. God's holiness is for us, not against us. He's not inciting us to stumble. This ought, to, this ought to encourage us in the midst of a trial because who's not at work here? God's not causing you to struggle. He's not causing you to fall. He's not creating in you that, that, that desire for sin. He's not doing that. So you ought to know right off the bat, you want to discern God's will, that ought to be real clear right now. And, and we'll get to it in James 3. This is not of God. Why? Because my desire is contrary to God's word. That's not of God. God is for us. He, he is aiding our, few, our, our fight. He is fueling our fight. He's protecting us. God does not bring evil upon us. He does not tempt us to sin because He is unexperienced when it comes to evil. But, but in contrast to God being perfectly sinless, look at verse 14. James says, humans are utterly sinful. Humans are utterly sinful. You can't find a strong enough word there, to describe the sinfulness of humanity. He says, but each one is tempted and carried away by his own lust. The, the word lust there, it, it, the definition in the Greek, he's pointing to any human longing for that which God prohibits. It is a human longing for that which God prohibits. What he's saying is, our tendency is to want what we shouldn't want. We want what we shouldn't want. Our tendency is to sin. And nobody is exempt. James writes this in the present tense, meaning temptation is a repeated experience of every human being for the rest of your life. You know what you're going to battle with for the rest of your life? Temptation. Sin. Some of us may have a stronger hold on it than others. Some of us are going to struggle with things that others don't. Others are going to struggle with what others don't. And yet the repeated experience for you and I is going to be temptation to sin. And it's interesting what James says here. You would think, okay, well, if I can't blame God, then let's blame Satan. You'd think, well, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by what Satan is doing. That's not what he says. Satan isn't the one. Satan isn't the one dragging us away. Look what he says in verse 14. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his whose lust? His own lust. His own lust. You know what you're being tempted and carried away by? You. 
you. This doesn't mean that Satan's not involved, and we're going to see that. We'll see it in, in, in James 4, 7 if we ever get there. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Satan, again, Satan does tempt. Satan does attack. But what James is saying here is the responsibility for the temptation, for the response, lies squarely on your shoulders and on my shoulders. What, what James is saying here is that the, the, he is highlighting individual responsibility for sin. You are responsible. It's not your wife's fault. It's not your environment's fault. It's not your co-worker's fault. It's none of that. The problem lies within you and it lies within me. The problem is not with God. It's not with any of these other things. You and I are the issue. What James is saying here is there is no one to blame for our sin but you and I personally. Personally. Look in the mirror, and the person looking back at you is the one responsible for your sin. Not, not anyone else. Other factors, to be sure, they come into play. But we are ultimately responsible for our sin. And you, you hear it in your kids all the time. Immaturity, this is a, one of the signs, and like I said, maturing our faith. What do kids do when they get in trouble? She made me mad. He made me hit her. He made me do it. She made me do it. They, blame. Immaturity. They don't want to take responsibility. And, and what James is saying is the, the, the temptation to sin is not outside of me, it's inside of me. The problem is inside of me. That's what James is driving home. It's evil desires inside of me that are the problem. Look, look at Mark 7, verses 18 through 23. And, and there's a whole lot to this, this little passage that we could talk about and, and probably make some of us in here squirm and uneasy, but we, we won't go there today. We'll do that some other time. Mark seven eighteen, And he said to them, Jesus is speaking, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him? Think about what he's saying there. Are you defiled by what you eat or drink? You're not. That's what he's saying. It's, it's, not what goes, it's not what comes from the outside to the inside that defiles a man. Why? Because it does not, does it not go into his heart? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and it is eliminated. We'll leave that alone. Verse 20. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles a man. For from within, out of the where? Heart of man... This is what comes out of your and mine heart. Evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, deeds of wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. That's a picture of your heart and my heart. Do you understand why in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 and the new covenant, God says, I'm going to give you a new heart, I'm going to circumcise your heart, because that's the problem. Even in Isaiah, I think it's 64, 6, our deeds done in righteousness, he says, are filthy rags compared to the Lord. Those, that's my righteous deeds. Not my sin, my righteous deeds. Yours and my heart is the problem. Why do we need God's word? Why do we need prayer? Why do we need the church and the fellowship and all the... Why do I need the word of God richly dwelling in me, as it says in Colossians 3, 16? Because I need the word of God in me to put to death the deeds of the flesh. I need, my, I need the Word of God in me crushing these things because out of my heart 
evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Listen to what he says, verse 23. All these evil things proceed from within and defile a man. The problem is not external. The problem is internal. My insides are the problem. My kids don't make me angry. My, the reason why we get angry, it's multifold. It could be because I have a sense of control. I have a sense of I, I'm a pride, wanting to look like a great parent. I have all these things going on inside of me, and so they react. It triggers that inside of me, and I respond. I've got anger inside of me. I, I, I was reminded of this uh, the other day. Uh, a friend of mine, John, he s- told me of the, just say, hey, there's a property over here in Lake Parker. It's a vacant piece of lot, like an acre on a lake. It's, he was just telling me about it. All of a sudden in my heart, I'm like, man, that sounds good. On a lake, right by the church. Five minutes ago, I didn't even care. All of a sudden, I'm thinking in my mind, man, well, we can't afford that. But Karen could go back and get a job. Karen could start working. And, you know, she could do this and she could do that. We could make this work. And here's the here. You know why that you know why you know why that appealed to me? Because I'm covetous. You know that appealed to me because oftentimes I lack contentment. You know that appealed to me because I love stuff. You know what that appealed to me because my heart is wretched. Listen to me. My wonderful wife. She didn't even skip a beat. That didn't register one iota on her radar. It was the most repulsive. It was like the most repulsive thing in the world. She just looked at John. And just she saw me. And she was like, Yeah, thanks, John. Thanks for doing that. She didn't even miss a beat. Why? It's in me. The problem is in me. The problem is my heart. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 7, 18. For I know that nothing good lives within me that is in my flesh. That is so contrary to what we hear today in pop culture. Oh, people are, people are basically good. That's not what the Bible says. Romans 3.10 says there are none that are good. None. Some may be better than others, but they're not good. Romans, even in 7.24, listen to what Paul says. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Paul understood what is, that the, the problem was the heart. Paul understood that he needed God. He needed the Spirit inside of him. He needed the Word of God richly dwelling in him to suppress and to fight and to ward off what was going to naturally, if left to itself, flow out of the heart. And listen to what I'm saying. Listen to what I, Please hear me. This is clear. I want to be very clear on this. Do not hear me that external things have no effect. Those external things that we get involved in, whether it's false theology, whether it's dealing with the occult, whether it's pornography, whether it's drugs, whether it's watching movies, hear me well. Those things have an effect. Why? Ultimately because they're digging, they're drumming up stuff that's in my heart. And Satan knows that. They have an effect. But ultimately the problem is inside of me. That's why Ephesians 5.3 says, But immorality or any impurity or greed must be not named among you as is proper with saints. Before, as a Christian, you had nothing to fight the flesh. Now we have the Spirit living inside of us to fight the flesh. He said, that makes no sense. John 16, greater is He that is in you than is He is in the world. You don't have to obey. 
And listen to me, what James is helping us understand, and and the reason why I say that, that these outside things, they do play a part, but ultimately it's me. Actions are the reflection or the result of character. But actions also shape character. Our actions are a reflection of our character, but our actions also eventually shape our character. That's why I'm saying what we do, what we listen to, where we go, all those things are huge. Huge. But why? Because ultimately deep inside of me, they're appealing to something that's inside of me that I need the Word of God, I need the Spirit of God to crucify. My flesh will never crucify my flesh. But I need the Word of God richly dwelling in me so that Ephesians 5.18, I'll be controlled by the Spirit. I won't be controlled by the flesh. Our problem is inside of us, but the outside will eventually affect the inside if we do not separate ourselves. That's what I'm trying to say. That's why the outside takes effect, because inside it's appealing to something in me. And James, the word he uses, the picture he uses here in the original language, literally would have reminded his readers of a fisherman. What does a fisherman do? A fisherman takes this real sharp thing called a hook, and he hides that hook inside of something that appeals to the fish. Go, go out in the lake and just dangle a hook. You might snag something, but you dangle a piece of bread, you put a worm, you put something, guess what happens? That fish is drawn to your hook. Why? Because he likes the worm. The smell of it, the look of it, the action of it, it draws the fish in. It appeals to his character. It appeals to something inside of him. It could simply be hunger. But that fish, the fish don't reason like we do. He just responds. He reacts. And something inside of the fish is attracted to the bait. Guess what happens? That fish bites that thing thinking it's a worm when really it's a hook. See, that's sin. That's the deceitfulness of sin. That fish is then what? That fish is hooked and drug away. He's hooked and drug away. That's that's what James is saying with temptation. Saying you're enticed, something appeals to you, it's deceiving you. It appears Satan will pretend it to be one thing when it's something else. And when confronted by something appealing, we'll see the outward attraction and we'll go after it. And what we're going to see is it sets sets in motion a deadly consequence of actions. But again, whose fault is it? It's our fault. It's not God's fault. It's not Satan's fault. Satan, to be sure, he baits the hook. The world baits the hook. Demons bait the hook. Men bait the hook. Ultimately, the problem is in you and I. That's why you can put something... Let's say, you know, there are some sins that I don't struggle with. I, don't, I mean, I'm not picking on but I don't struggle with attraction to other men. I don't struggle with over, I don't struggle with over drinking alcohol, not drinking alcohol at all. But see, some of you may. And see, some of you may struggle with things that I don't struggle with. And you might not struggle with something that I struggle with. But the, the problem is it's because it's inside of us. It appeals to something inside of us. And what James is saying is temptation is a universal human problem. A universal human problem. And we will battle with it for the rest of our lives while we're in the flesh. 
He says in 1 Peter 2.11, Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Why would he command you to abstain and to fight it if it wasn't a real issue? Because it's a real issue. It wages war. That's why this summer we're going, to talk, we're going to have the Bible study on Wednesday nights, Invincible War, Invisible Love. There is a war going on at all times for our allegiance and our devotion. And the issue of who to blame in temptation for sin is a very big deal because it's as old as sin. It's as old as sin. We must realize that you and I are the problem. It's not my problem. Do you know the biggest problem in my marriage is? It's not Karen. It's not even the two kids. It's Chris Basham. And you know who, from Karen's perspective, you know who the biggest problem in our marriage is? It's not Chris Basham, though that's probably true. It's Karen Basham. It's Karen Basham. Same in your marriage. Satan will deceive us into thinking the problem is our spouse. He'll deceive us into thinking the problem is this. It's not. It's you. And it's me. Worldly wisdom says find someone to blame. Godly wisdom says you're looking at the man in the mirror who's to blame. Deal with that man. Worldly wisdom says let me try to change my spouse because they're the problem. Godly wisdom says no, no, you are the problem. And if I was a better husband, I guarantee you it helped Karen be a better spouse. If I was the better husband, but it's easy to focus on her. Not, don't hear me wrong, and not that she needs to be a better spouse. Let the record be known. But my behavior affects her, and her behavior affects mine. Here's what James is saying. Own your sin. Own your choices. Take responsibility. Stop looking for someone to blame and blame the guy or the gal looking at the mirror. We, we are the problem. You and I are the problem. My wretched heart and all the stuff that's in my heart that's sinful is the problem. And by God's grace, that, that, that's why I try to stay in this Word. That's why I try to stay in Bible studies. That's why I, it's for protection. Because I don't know how deceitful my own heart is, but what I do know about my heart, Jeremiah says the heart is desperately wicked. Who, above all else, who can understand it? The little bit I do know of my heart, I don't like. And I don't even know all there is. So I stay in God's Word. Hear me, hear me. Ultimately, I am responsible for my sin. If you don't hear anything else, you see it on your handout. Ultimately, I am responsible for my sin. It's 1040. Oh, we got problems. And secondly, in verse 15, the consequences of giving in to temptation. The consequences. James deals in verse 15, okay, so what's the consequences? Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Sin does not just happen out of nowhere. Please hear me. It does not just happen. It's a process. It's a sequence. Look what he says. He says, first of all, in verse 14, there's deception. There's deception. Next, there's a desire. That thing appeals to something within us. There's a desire. Then there's disobedience. We act on the desire. If we're not careful, we act on the desire. That's, that's the action, the outward that you see. Lastly, death. That's what James says, death. When sin is conceived, it gives birth to, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Listen to me. It begins lust and desire. That's where your sin comes from. That's the mother of sin. 
You can go to Proverbs 5 through 9, and the writer of Proverbs great, paints a great picture. There's, a, there's an adulterous woman, and there's wisdom, woman wisdom over here, and they're both calling out from their houses. They're both enticing the man. Come over to, literally, graphic language, come to my house. Come over to my house. The man is walking down the street. The lady Folly is yelling, hey, come over to my house. She's wearing nice clothes. She's looking all seductive. Come over. Come over. Other side of the street, you have Lady Wisdom saying, come over. Come over here. The problem is, which one will we obey? Listen to me. You go to Lady Folly's house. You give in to those sinful desires. James is making it very clearly. You know what comes about? Death. Death. On some level, death. Whether it's fellowship with God, whether it's spiritual death, whether it's physical death, for some of us, for unbelie- if you're an unbeliever in here, it's eternal death. Death. You, you can't get around it. You go to 1 Corinthians 11, there were people who were taking the Lord's Supper in vain, in a wrong way, and God killed them, took them home. You go to 1 John 5, 16, there's a sin that doesn't lead to death, there's a sin that leads to death. Ultimately, sin is death. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Hear me, we're free to choose. We're free to choose. But we're not free to choose the consequences. And the consequence of sin is death. Some of us are making decisions and still making decisions in our lives, and it's causing death. Death of relationship with our spouse, with loved ones, with, with, with the Lord. That's what in 1 John he says, if, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us for all unrighteousness. And he's talking about in the context there, fellowship. There's a fellowship with the Lord. There's fellowship with believers. Sin is death. If you don't hear anything else, again, you see it on your handout, sin is a killer. Satan will not present it that way. It's a killer. I'm going to go, Lord willing, fishing tomorrow. Guess what? I'm going to put a piece of bread on that hook, and the fish bites it. I'm going to rip that hook through his lips. I'm going to pull him out of the water, and if the water was nicer, I'd eat it. I'm going to throw him back. He's a lucky fish. But sin is a killer. You, you follow the flesh. You follow what your, your heart's desire. You, do, you believe that we're basically good. It's a killer. It's going to kill you. Satan seeks, the Bible is very clear, Satan seeks to kill, to steal, and destroy. I'm telling you, he ain't going to show up at the doorstep looking like a red dude with pointy ears and a pitchfork. That's why verses 16 through 18, and we'll close, James says the need for discernment. The need for discernment. Do not be deceived, my brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among all His creations. L- listen, listen real carefully. Second Corinthians eleven. Listen to this, verses twelve and following. Just listen to this real carefully. But what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off, Paul's writing, so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. Listen, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. That word disguise literally is the word masquerade. 
You put a little mask, you hold a little mask over your face, and you pretend to be somebody you're not. What, look at this, listen to this. No wonder, verse 14, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan does not come up to you in a little red dude with pointy ears and a pitchfork, say, hi, I'm Satan, I'm here to destroy you. He comes appealing to something and, that we want. He comes and, inter, and, and, and tries to interrupt what God is doing in purifying our faith, and He's trying to destroy, and He's trying to steal, and He's trying to kill, and He's trying to maim, and He can't take away the security of our salvation. So you know what He wants to do, believer? He wants to destroy the enjoyment of our salvation. And, and it's the same. Do not be deceived. Everything that looks good and sounds good ain't good. That's why 1 John 4, I think he says, test the spirits. You ought to be going home when I teach or anyone else teaches, whether it's Tim or Ken or, or Lee or Dwayne, and you ought to be sifting it. Is that what the Word says? That, that's why we go verse by verse. I want you to see. That's why we look at other verses. This is not, I'm not making this up. I do not want us deceived. I do not want us to be deceived. Deceived about what? You see on your hand. I don't want us to be deceived about the source and consequence of sin. I don't want us to be deceived. If you're in here today and you have not repented of your sinfulness, if you've not admitted your sinfulness and called upon the blood of Jesus to wash your sins white as snow, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, if you're not leaning on that entirely, there's coming a day you're going to die and you will spend eternity in hell. That's, just the, that's what the Bible says. The wages of sin is death. Don't be deceived. You, it, may, it may be fun now. There's coming a there, payday someday. Payday someday. Don't be deceived. But secondly, don't be deceived about the character of God. Don't be deceived about the character of God. We have a tendency to fool ourselves. And, and, and fool ourselves on a couple things. Number one, when trials come, when bad things happen, here's what Satan wants us to believe, that God does not exist. That God doesn't exist. If he can't get us to believe that God doesn't exist, he'll want us to believe that his character includes evil. Maybe it's his, he exists, but he's not good. If he can't get us to believe that, then he'll get us to believe this, that he's powerless to help. That he's powerless to help. He may be good, and he may exist, but he's not omnipotent, and he really can't help you. And if he can't get us to do that, he'll, lastly, he'll just get you to believe that God doesn't care. That God just kind of pulled the string on the yo-yo and sent this whole world in motion and then walked away and whatever happens, happens. Those, they're all lies. Don't be deceived. James makes it very clear. Contrast to sin, look what he says. God is the source of every good gift. He only gives good gifts. Why? Because his character demands it and his character won't allow it. Only good gifts. I mean, listen to me. Do you really think that God would cruise? My sin put Jesus Christ on a cross, crucified him, buried him. Three days later, God raised him up. He died for my sin. 2 Corinthians 5. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Do you really believe, guys, this is how foolish this is? that God would send His Son to die for my sin and then cause me to sin? You really think He's going to cause me to do the very thing that caused Him to put His Son on a cross? That's what James is saying in verse 18. 
God regenerated you. He gave you a new birth, a new life. You really think he's going to contradict that? That's what Paul is saying in Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him freely over, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He did the hard thing. He'll definitely do the easy thing. He, he not gonna, he's not going to put his son on a cross, free us from slavery of sin, and then drive us back to slavery to sin. He set us free from that. Romans 6, sin shall no longer be your master. You have been freed to serve a new master. I have been freed to serve a new master. Don't go back. And God's not going to drive you back. What God is doing is trying to break our hearts towards these sinful things that don't provide. He's trying to create new desires in us. He's trying to, to, to mold our heart and conform us into His image so that those things have no appeal. But not only that, James says, not only is every good gift from God, God is unchanging. Put those two things together. God is a giver of good gifts. God will never not want to give good gifts. You know, th that's the problem with Bradley and Sarah. They got a dad who sometimes is a giver of good gifts, and then sometimes is in a bad mood and don't want to give him good gifts. And see, the world will want us to think that God is moody like you and I. I'm probably not the only parent that struggles with that. I'm moody. I change. I got variations. You know what James is saying? God is good, He only gives good, and He will always only give good. Period. Just like the stars and the sun and the moon that He created, they change, they create shadows, they're here today, gone tomorrow, they shift, sometimes you see, God's not like that. He's totally set apart. Not only that, as if that wasn't good enough, listen, James reminds them that God has made a way to save us from the penalty of our sins, and it comes by the word of truth. Faith comes by hearing, Romans 10 says, and hearing by the Word of God. Ephesians 5, you know what we need to be washed with? The hearing of the Word of God. All while we were sinful to the core, that is Christianity. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sin. And He was buried and he was resurrected three days later to show that he has the power over death. I pray that everyone in here believes that. And if you're struggling with that, come grab me after the service. I'd love to talk with you more about it. But understand this. 1 Timothy 2.15, Paul says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief or the foremost. If you don't hear anything else... Jesus Christ was sent into the world to save sinners, of whom you're the foremost. I'm the foremost. And if we will repent, if we will stop blaming others, if we'll own it, God says there's forgiveness. I'll wash it away. I'll exchange that sin for eternal life. But you're going to have to admit it. You're going to have to agree with God that it's I'm the problem. I pray that we would be a people who admit when we've fallen. But not only that, I pray that we'd be a people who would forgive people who admit they've fallen. If we're going to admit that we're sinners, let's be a people that forgive sinners because we're sinners. And let's say to the world, we're not perfect, but we forgive each other's imperfections. Why? Because we have a Savior who is willing to forgive our imperfections. So the source of sin is me, the consequence of sin is death. Don't be deceived about God's goodness in the midst of that. If you're, if you're here today hearing me, you're a sinner in need of mercy. 
And God offers it through Jesus Christ. No matter what you've done, no matter where you are, there's forgiveness.